0: Welcome to She Inspires Me. I'm your host, Caroline Bruni, founder of She Inspires Me and Organise Curate Design. Launched as a Facebook passion project back in 2017, She Inspires Me was reborn as a podcast in 2020 to highlight the incredible women we all encounter in our everyday lives. Thanks to our key sponsor, Organise Curate Design, I welcome you to Season 2, another year of sharing the stories of inspirational women. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to jump in your ears before we get started, as today's episode will be discussing family violence or domestic violence, whichever is the term that you are most familiar with. Now, we always like to provide you with a trigger warning when we are talking about content that is upsetting. But I wanted to ensure that you were aware of what we would be talking about. One, if you are listening and there are maybe kids in the car or whatever else, you could save this episode for another day. Or if you are potentially in a situation where this content will be upsetting to you or it may bring up um, matters from the past or, or whatever else, please be mindful of that as we um you know, we always want to share this information with you, but also want to give you a few extra warnings if we feel that we need to. Please enjoy the episode. It is a really good one. I um, really enjoyed speaking to Hella and um, learned so much from her in the time that we spoke. And I think that you will also. If you do find that you need support, be it Right now, at the end of the episode or whenever you feel that you need some support in this space, please check our show notes. We do have some resources there that Hala has recommended and they will be very helpful to you. Thank you again for tuning in and for being a part of this community and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of She Inspires Me. I have with me today Hala Abdelnour. Hala, it is such a pleasure to be chatting to you on today. We are officially recording this on International Women's Day, so happy, International Women's Day. happy International Women's Day.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Happy International Women's Day.
0: Great to be a woman. Great to be a woman. I see this as the the celebration that the, the I I treat this day kind of like Christmas Day. Um, I call all my friends. I send them all messages. I tell them how much I love them. I um, make a point to reach out to the women that have, you know, just a front of mind for me and it's, it's, you know, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of other discussions to be had on this day but um, I see it as a day of celebration.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, celebrate the feminine.
0: Yes, which definitely. We all
1: embody, but you know, obviously, women are far more encouraged to exhibit.
0: Um, yes, that energy. Yeah. Mm. That's very true. <laughs> but now yeah, I'm and- going to introduce you, um, kind of formally, to our listeners and share a little bit about you. So, um, Hala is the founder of the Institute of Nonviolence. Um, and is a highly qualified and experienced consultant and professional trainer with specialist skills in family violence, intersectionality, and diversity and inclusion. She has completed a Bachelor of Science, Psychology, Bachelor of Arts, Criminology, Bachelor of Social Work, equivalent to uh, the current master's program, advanced diploma in group facilitation, certificate four in Dual dual diagnosis, Diagnosis and c- certificate for in training assessment and education. She is a Vincent Fairfax Fellow. She has completed the company directors course, and she is the current chair of the. I can a- always get stuck on this for a word. Um, Diaspora. Diaspora. I can never, I can never say it. (laughs) Action Australia. Hala has lived, worked, and or travelled in approximately fifty countries and speaks six languages. Hala has dedicated her career to supporting individuals and families who are experiencing various hardships, including family violence. Hala has focused on people from migrant and refugee backgrounds, violence offenders, and those battling with addiction, substance use, and gambling. In this capacity, she has consulted with Victoria Police, various government bodies and welfare services regarding more inclusive practice and effective client engagement she has always um, also developed and delivered numerous training programs to community members, including multicultural and multi-faith communities, as well as various professional um, professionals in the emergency services, government, private and non-for-profit sectors. You don't even seem old enough to have done all that stuff. Like, holy dooly, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I am like... I, I have been working with you for a little while now and that is really, really impressive. But I think the thing that I first want to dive into um, is with such an extensive history and career path, how did you get to this work or what brought you to work specifically in the space of family violence?
1: It's a great question. Um because we I think it's common for us to reflect every now and then on where we've ended up in life and I certainly um, had massive moments of that last year 2020 being the most um out- remarkable year <laughs> in our lifetime um and a year of a lot of reflection I was in lockdown in Melbourne most of the year well well yeah pretty much all of it so um and, and launched the Institute of Violence, So of nonviolence, sorry. And um, yeah, and reflected on my journey to, to this point. And it goes back to a number of things. It, it just felt like um, for a long time I said I just fell into family violence work. But as I reflected, I realized it just really, I was on that path for a very long time. And I, I did um, a leadership program when I was 16 with the Rotary Club. And I remember just feeling so inspired to, I didn't, I, I thought I was going to be a dentist at the time and I just felt so moved and inspired. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm far from being a dentist. <laughs> yeah, I'm as far from that as possible. But <laughs> so um, I was so moved by the lead facilitator in particular, but just the whole program of, um, the capacity to influence people so much at such a deep level to make to, to create this movement inside um, or shifts and and the depth of reflection that they took us through and I just didn't understand any of that what was going on but I just thought that's what I want to do like I need to be able to. Um, facilitate something like that for people because it changed my life so much it was so transformative and from there I went into um, being really active at university with um, creating an Arabic club at Melbourne Uni with with peers and um, being on the committee of that for a long time lots of leadership roles Um, so my interest in studies took me to it just kind of landed in psychology and criminology and I was just so interested in the forensic world which I'd never thought about before I got to uni and just it was an elective to begin with criminology and then I ended up just doing so much ma- so much of it um psych I pretty much decided that's what I wanted to study and then and then um continued with social work and by rat sometimes it is random coincidence my my second placement in social work studies was at Port Phillip prison which is a maximum security correction mm. facility for men and I worked at the same time in the settlement services with migrant refugee communities, and I did a lot of youth work in that space. And a lot of young men, who I used to say, if you're going to keep going down this path, you will end up in jail one day. And and I saw that there's some of them came through Port Phillip when I was, so I was that I had these two worlds um, that seemingly have nothing to do with each other, but actually really just kept intertwining. And exposed me so much to minority groups, to the um, experiences of newly arrived people, even people who were born and raised in Australia, but don't fit the dominant cultural model, what it was like for them. I ended up supporting a lot of women and teenagers who were experiencing family violence in the community space and in the Mm -hmm. prison system and and the drug and alcohol system was just working so much with people who were using violence, but may have experienced it as as, um, children. And from there sort of went a series of things of working in problematic gambling and um, collecting. I guess that leadership program I did when I was 16 just opened up this part of me that's a bit obsessed and addicted to self-development programs. So every few years I do something like that. And so hence the Vincent Fairfax and, and a whole range of other things. And I just like to challenge myself, um, addicted to reflection maybe. And so, you know, it was a bit. Random, how I ended up facilitating men's behavior change, but I also think that when um, God the stars align and it just throws you somewhere that fits you so perfectly, there's also something not so random about that. Um, yeah. and yeah, collectively those experiences inspired me to establish the Institute of Nonviolence where I can group together everything that I've seen, everything that I've worked on, all my experiences personal and professional and Mm -hmm. create a space where I can talk about these things because sometimes um, in the mainstream it's very difficult to hone in on a niche area, which for me is intersectional practice um, and engaging perpetrators. It's a long answer.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. And I, I just give myself time to process sometimes, so sometimes our poor listeners have to listen to my silence as my brain catches up to all the things that you've just said. Um, I I really love the fact that you have made a point recently to look at that journey and to look at the fact that it wasn't a fluke, that there were very clear milestones and moments in time and influences that took you to the next thing. And even being so young in your career, but seeing the clear um, two worlds colliding um, moment and knowing somewhere that that was going to be a really big part of the future journey um, and the place that you wanted to make change, which I think sometimes as women or as individuals, we can have those moments, but we can almost ignore them because they almost seem too obvious. It's like this is really obvious but um, I, I I said I was going to do X so I, I need to keep doing that path. Like I still I, I need to keep doing this thing. Um, but as we can see, it's um, that spark that was um, lit back at Rotary when you were younger has definitely continued to be there. Yeah. So working with... Uh, go sorry. You tell no,
1: me I one was one. just gonna say on that point. I think I think you drew a really interesting, like a, a great point around. I'm going to do X, and society sort of really encourages that when you're young. What are you going to do? And we we think of jobs, um, mm. and I th- without sort of having the the level of insight to articulate this, but I have reflected on this uh, um, throughout my journey that instead of choosing the job, I chose the impact I wanted to have. But mm-hmm. I didn't know the job, and' I've, it's taken lots of different jobs, and every job I've had and career I've had has influ- has has impacted that in different ways and has allowed me to um enact that influence that I was so passionate about in in a completely different context, in a different mechanism. sometimes it was clinical, sometimes it was community development, sometimes social science. even I even had a year of corporate work in Qatar. Um, which was very interesting. i do not not super aligned, but, yeah. Um, you know, so sort of that's a conversation I've had with a lot of young people growing up, you know, so uh, along the way is what what is the impact, what is the influence you want to have on society rather than what's the career you want to have? And it sort of then gets shaped if you um, remain aligned with those values and um, ambitions.
0: Yeah, it's so true and... I have the pleasure of working with young people through Project NZ, which is an organisation that goes in and teaches um, workshops at schools. And that's often what I speak to them about. It's like, I don't want to know what job you think you want to do one day. Like, if you know, then that's great. But most of them don't. Um, It is definitely about purpose and impact. And and that's a completely different feeling to the job I'm going to do when I grow up type of scenario yeah. well yeah, it, it creates a different conversation as well um so you've you would have seen you have seen um many very many confronting and difficult um situations and you've had, you've been in some very confronting and difficult conversations and there are some people I, I actually don't know how many there are. I, I think as I scratch the surface, I, f- I find less and less of them that haven't been impacted in one way, shape or form by some kind of family violence or, or, or trauma or something. Um, there are a handful out there that have not. Um, so with those people or with the people that maybe – are fortunate enough to not have experienced anything, or or even have an understanding of it. What do you believe to be the most common misconceptions around family violence, um, or even the 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 term family violence?
1: Yeah, yeah, which is 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 Victorian. Um, You know, around Australia, domestic violence is used or family and domestic violence. um, And sometimes we separate and actually say sexual and family or domestic violence uh, Mm -hmm. just to separate the different experiences. So nationally, this is a topic of conversation at the moment in Australia, that we really do need one definition for the whole country, which we don't have at the moment. Every state and territory has its own. so that's one. And in terms of people having the right idea about what it is, it would help if we legally had an agreed-on definition. So mm-hmm. that's sort of, we, you know, in the West sort of societies, this kind of social models we, we've we created and structured, um, having those kinds of legal definitions does influence society and does give us, um, a sp- you know, an, an avenue to look at things and understand things by and uh, shape the way we respond to as well. So that's the importance of uh legislation guiding something about the conversation but of course legislation is guided by the thinkers out there and the thinkers out there um you know would say you know just to to sort of um parts of your question around who's impacted and who isn't and Mm. a lot of the time we speak about direct and indirect impact um because Mm. the research shows that family violence does Indirectly, at least, impact all of society, and we are in such an economically focused world that that's one of the mm-hmm. first things that gets talked about: the cost to health, and the cost to justice response, and the you know. So the cost to society is in the billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that an indirect or direct impact on people? Because that's money being spent on certain places. Yeah. It yeah. it's also an indirect impact because just about everybody you know, the sort of two, three degrees of separation will know someone somewhere that is directly impacted. And that someone is, um, could be, you know, it could be complex supporting that person. It could take a toll on people's emotions. You you might know someone who's using violence and you don't know what to do about it or you don't even recognise it. And this is something else is coming back to the misconceptions about what family violence is is um, not understanding it. So, and the the use of the word violence really confuses a lot of people because we, violence traditionally, and you can look at, you know, sort of international definitions of it, does talk about um, more things like physical and sexual and quite overt expressions of anger or or aggression, really aggressive Mm -hmm. treatment of people. And that might be, often we think about physical forms of that but even just intensive sort of verbal forms. But for someone to think of financial abuse as violence is complex. Mm. And this is where people go, well, that's not violence. So the amount of people out there who don't even realise they're impacted by family violence. So they might say, no, I'm so blessed I've never experienced that. But And I get this in a lot of the training um, sessions that I deliver. People will start off going, oh, thankfully I've never experienced that. And at the end they're sort of,
0: uh, They're, trying, know. Yeah. Yeah, They're trying I to put the information in context to their own lives.
1: Well, we sort yeah. of shed light on how broad the definition of family violence is, and it goes into financial abuse and social abuse and um, sexual, technological, um, physical, obviously, verbal, um, spiritual violence. So it's, it's really um, power over a person and controlling a person's decision-making and... Mm-hmm influencing their behaviors through instilling fear in them largely. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to cough.
0: No, that's fine. <coughs> that's because this is a real conversation with real people and real people cough sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so um, um a lot of And I guess coloring- that is part of the mi- misconception because there is there's so much language out there and language is so important to the education of just under, just further understanding things as, as an individual, let alone as a society and as a graded nation. Um, but it's also, the as you said, some people are like, I'm, I'm so lucky everything's fine. Um, fine is probably the red flag in itself. <laughs> that word often to me is a red flag. Um, but yeah having the language and understanding of of the complexities and the the layered versions of this kind of violence. Yeah,
1: yeah. so so the first misconception is what is family violence and our understanding. And the second is why it happens. And the third is why people experiencing violence respond the way they do. And largely, why do they stay? And these mm. are the most asked questions. When we start talking about people who experience family violence, we get into without realizing it a lot of victim blaming dialogue. Mm. Why did why why doesn't she leave? What's she doing to what's she doing? Perfect. It takes two to tango.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, is she exaggerating? she's mm. just trying to um, get his money or the house or take the kids away you know that's when women do report the violence um, you know or, or sort of not believing the reporting um, And mm-hmm. in terms of when we when when most people engage who were not um, sort of um, exposed to the expert knowledge on family violence, the majority of the conversations just sort of day to day in society would go straight to anger. And anger management, you know, uh, they just need to control their emotions and um, or uh, it's drugs or it's alcohol or it's mental illness. And so all of these things um, together are huge misconceptions which make the whole process of addressing violence and trying to end it very complex because we need Mm. massive attitudinal shifts in society.
0: Yeah. Very much so. and so last year you decided to combine all of the things that you have done for such a long time and you launched your own business. so you launched the Institute of Nonviolence. Um, now for me personally, when I heard that your the business name, the organization's name, I was like that. I had to really sit with it for a few days because I was like, what does that mean to me? Like how does that, how do I process that? Um, mm. And I find that really interesting with with any um, not-for-profit organisations or, or organisations that are working in a certain space. Um, like, yes, you know, Nike doesn't, the word doesn't mean anything to me. It's just a brand. But when it comes to something that I can see the substance and value sitting behind it and the lessons and learning sitting behind it. I I actually originally found the words nonviolence to be confronting because I had to kind of rethink my own thinking, um, which goes back to what we just talked about around the different levels of um, communication and language we have in our society and me having an understanding of, oh, it's domestic violence and it's, it was always... The my lens was always looking at the victim or survivor um, whatever they identify as um, it was never looking at the part before and the thinking of non-violence of not doing um, so that's kind of how when I first heard what the business was called I was like I need to unpack that in my own head even before I engage in conversation here because I need to kind of see how this resonates for me. But can you talk me through one why you chose that name and then what um, you know what you are doing with the institute and um the goals that you've set for yourself moving forward?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. It was very it didn't take long to come up with it and it was definitely deliberate and I guess it's um sort of where I've come to in the years of doing work around various forms of offending behaviors um and and actually really spending so much time in in men's behavior change spaces uh with you know probably hundreds maybe thousands of men over the years um definitely hundreds of hours of men's behavior change um and just noticing, sort of the response to men when they come in, and just oh, why are you telling me I'm a bad person? I'm not a bad person. Just that kind of the sense of shame and the stigma, and the words we use, perpetrator. And these words are important in terms of acknowledging the impact of the behaviour on on the people who are experiencing it. Um, but they are loaded terms, and they are um, uh, loaded from a negative sort of context in the sense that they are they are highlighting the the, the the intensity and the, and the um, shadow side of the behaviour, even just toxic masculinity. So we're, we're in a space right now in society where we're constantly pointing out violence and violence against women, toxic masculinity, perpetrators, and it's just uh, for me it's almost like when you keep bringing something to the surface, which we absolutely need to name it, um, but then it's sort of we can get psychologically stuck in it. Um, and so I wanted to talk about nonviolence. I wanted to remind people that we're doing this work to reach nonviolence, which which I do believe is our, is inherent to mm. um, existence. Um, and so whilst you could look at a biological systems model of life, of ecosystems and and notice, violence in it notice competition between species notice you know animals killing other animals for food and Mm. or or also and even killing baby cubs and you know all sorts of you can you can sit and name all the you know but in the broader scheme of things i fundamentally believe that the inherent driving force of life and existence is actually love and non-violence and that is the core essence of all existence including ourselves as humans so it's a reminder to just connect with that because, again, you know, we love to talk about how humans evolved beyond other species. We've got cognitive functioning and mm-hmm. um, the capacity to process, to reflect on our behaviour. We've got conscious thinking. We can articulate. We speak. Um, you know, all of these things. So let's put that to good use because we have the capacity to move beyond those. Um, sometimes people call them primitive forces or the the, the reptile brain or the whatever it is, the evolutionary sort of mechanisms that drive us to competition and using power over uh, to yeah. gain access to resources at the end of the day. It's for survival. But we will actually survive better as a species and the planet will survive better if we connect with our inherently nonviolent self. That's, that <laughs> that's, that's,
0: the, that's the nutshell. It's it's. We've got it that a mic drop? Like, uh, is just the interview's done. That. That's it. Mic drop. That was <laughs> a little the, bit like that. That was in a little the bit like One of those moments <laughs> that was. Yeah, and uh, I love when this happens. Then I get. I, I love these kind of conversations, and and when I have the opportunity to speak to people that just baffle me a little because I have to take the time to process it, and I guess. Uh, anyone that's actually listened to every single episode of this podcast knows that sometimes i'm a human and i need to just process what i've just heard um but in that can you share with us with that as as the mindset and the driving force behind the institute of nonviolence what have you got in store for us or the world or who are you who who do you actually work with because that will give there might be someone listening going, oh, I want to, but they don't know if they can engage with your organization directly Mm. because they're an individual or whatever. So kind of talk us through how that works.
1: Sure. Like there's, I guess there's a mixture of, um, elements to the Institute. And so as I was, creating it I guess or designing it it sort of flooded me a bit as well It kind of just came through lots of meditation and I actually sat one day and just wrote and I end up with pages like five pages uh, which were the the crux and the the initiation of a, of a business model um, and the plan for establishing it and and that included three arms which are educational where we provide professional training um, largely to professionals and that's any professional, so anyone in any organisation that wants to think about how to better support employees um, who might disclose using or experiencing family violence, to highly intensive training for practitioners in the field who are frontline, um, client-facing and and um, specifically working with perpetrators. So, that, so our focus is about safely engaging with people who use violence and the, there's no way of doing that without understanding the experiences of victim survivors as well. So that always that's always part of the training. Everything's about centralizing the experience of, of and the impact of violence on people. Um, so that's so there's a training arm um, to what we do. There's a clinical side which has started off with the provision of clinical supervision to men's behaviour change facilitators, and down the track um, as we grow the intention is to expand into providing clinical and therapeutic work to people who are using family violence and that will be through individual and group work. Mm-hmm. And um, the the other arm is social and that's because part of the process and part of the work and, and if you interact with the family violence sector and anyone who's doing the work on this, um, you'll notice that there's a lot of focus on shifting attitudes and education around the causes the drivers of violence the gendered nature the attitudinal shifts that we need to make as a society to really um, make significant change to the prevalence of violence that we see in society so there's a social side which is um our social media engagement and uh the way we, we might you know collaborate with academics promote certain um Uh, research that comes out that's relevant uh we do that a lot on our website and so we 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 really focus on being a space for anyone to engage and to find something whether it's through our website or our social media content that they can relate to so it could be an individual it could be a professional so we try to mix it up and diversify Mm -hmm. it a bit and then through our uh, actual programs, it'll depend on who it is and that's probably more professionally focused. Um, yeah. It could be a government, not-for-profit or the corporate sector. Yeah, um, yeah so it's it's about having, it's joining the conversation, it's collaborating with the sector, it's providing a different space and it's also constantly um, framing it within an intersectional view of the world.
0: Mm. Which Uh, you you (laughs) segued so well. You segued so well into what I wanted to talk about next. I am going to um, admit something that I had not heard the word intersectional or intersectionality used before you and I started speaking, and then I was like, I literally had to look it up because I was like howla keep saying this word and I don't know what it means and I need to just know what it means and then even when I looked it up I then you know had that conversation with you because I was like can you tell me more about this because I want to better understand this and um, and whatever else but for those of uh, for the listeners who are like intersectionality what does that mean and also in context of this discussion can you explain that to us please
1: Yes, and I'll try to su- I'll try to summarize and and be as clear <laughs> as concise because it is actually it is an academic term and it is very complex, um, and it's largely used in the public sector and not for profit. Um, so I guess if you're not in that sector, it would really not be something you come across all the time. It is new and it's actually mostly misunderstood um, and misused. Uh, you know, even within the spaces that people use it a lot. So just a brief history, the term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's an academic professor of law in the United States, and she coined it in the late 80s, and it was a legal term, and it was legally used in the States for, for decades before it sort of took off in the mid-2000s, particularly in Australia, and just became this term that we started to use more widely, particularly in public policy spaces. But it basically was a case that went to the courts in the States where um, black women couldn't get employment um, in a particular car automotive industry. And even though the automotive industry had a gender equality um, there, and there were laws around gender equality, which clearly only applied to white women in the States at the time. Mm. And there were racial yep. equality laws that seemed to only apply to men. So then it was if you're a black woman, you didn't fit under either. And yeah, so yeah. then legally, the company won in court beca- and didn't, wasn't sued for not employing black women. There wasn't a law to protect that and so then she starts so for a very long time it was the intersection of race and gender but as it sort Mm -hmm. of evolved and people took it on board and realized that you know so if we talk about being black in the world you might be you might experience more oppression you might be more disadvantaged by systems around you and this is Mm -hmm. so important to talking about intersectionality it's not that if you're born black you're disadvantaged you're disadvantaged in a world that favors white people so it's the mm. social systems and structures we've built and created over time that disadvantage black persons, not because being black is less than being white. And where there's a lot of misuse of the word intersectionality is people say, oh, we're working with an intersectional lens, and then they just start listing, oh, um, you know, Indigenous, uh, disability, gender diversity, different sexual orientation, and all the different traits that we can, we can identify in life that might be more disadvantaged by the system and but we but focus on those traits and that's Mm -hmm. where we really need to shift and actually focus on the systems that create this disadvantage and and um, or advantage so if so we come to the cisgendered heterosexual fully abled middle-aged white male middle class middle to upper class who then ends up being the most advantaged person by our social systems and structures. Um, and f- and is is that making sense? Yeah, it is. It is yeah. definitely. So, so it is the systems that of um, power that that give more power to some and less power to others, basically, based on their based on how f- how far away they are in their lived experience and in their presentation and characteristics to the cisgendered, fully abled white man. And that's because the f- cisgendered, fully abled, heterosexual white man created this system yeah. in, ca- yes, in the is. past couple of hundred years. So anyone who created if if it was black women with disabilities who created this system you know, over the last yeah. 200 years, yeah. they would be the ones advantaged by it. Because mm. you see the world from your lens. You see the world from your own mm. lived experience. Yeah. So I might be such a nice person and really care and really want everybody to benefit equally, but I just can't see how I've excluded because I don't mm. know what it's like to be in a wheelchair. I yeah, don't know what it's yeah, like yeah. to be black in the world. I don't know what it's like to be transgender. And so I don't. I, I can't create systems that include if I don't understand what I need to do to include.
0: So to bridge the gap between the awareness of the I'm probably not going to use the right language so jump in if there is better language to use um, it, to so as you as you explained that I saw silos yeah um, and then my next thought was okay I see the silos I identify them and know that I don't want them to be sitting in their silos because, We've put them in this container that is actually created by the white man, if, if we're going to keep using that analogy. That's the reality of our lives. Um, but my question as a day-to-day person is if I, I have the awareness of the silos but without an, an actual understanding because there's lived experience is, is really the main understanding, what do I do now? You may not have the answer to this question.
1: <laughs> well, no, well, it is sort of what, what I'm working towards. So I guess when I'm talking to practitioners in the family violence space and even in, in any kind of service delivery space around mm. applying an intersectional lens to the work we do, let's focus on family violence. If I'm a man who's using violence in my home, where do I sit in society? What is my experience of empowerment or disempowerment within the society I live in that is Mm -hmm. contributing to my use of violence. And that's either because I'm so privileged in my world that I feel so entitled that I can't even see beyond my entitlement and I just walk around using power and control over most people because society just feeds that. Or I'm Mm -hmm. so oppressed by the systems around me, I feel so disempowered in certain spaces that I try to reclaim some sense of power by controlling and overpowering the people that I can, which is often Mm -hmm. my partner and children or some other, or an elderly person that I care for or whatever. So, Mm -hmm. and we definitely see that. We definitely see people who are disempowered in certain spaces. That includes victim survivors of family violence, where let's Mm -hmm. say a woman's experiencing violence from her partner might use violence towards her children or towards an elderly person or somewhere else, because that sense of disempowerment somewhere needs to be balanced out somewhere else. So the idea mm-hmm. is then to create a society where power imbalances are reduced and power mm-hmm. is shared more equally and Indigenous communities are geniuses at doing this and have done this. Indigenous cultures can teach us so much about this. Equilibrium of power Um you know not not patriarchal or matriarchal but a combination of both the yin yang mm-hmm. you know so the ancient yeah. models that, that describe these things uh, the the original swastika not the not the nazi one but the proper one which yes. was in, in in hinduistic um beliefs mm-hmm. was also a representation of balance of equal equilibrium um mm-hmm. uh, of power distribution and so the less disempowered the more people in the world that don't feel disempowered most of the time, the less they'll use, they'll need to use violence.
0: Yes. Because they don't common.
1: need to, because it's all, you know, scurrying around looking for resources and access to for survival. But if we just create, because there's an abundance, there's that we can absolutely all yes. survive yes, equally. So, abundance, yeah. yeah. So, that's what I, that's so in terms of right now, what we're addressing is if you have a, if you're working with someone who's using violence or experiencing violence at home, Where do they sit in society? Because that's relevant. Does Mm. your organisation represent them? Do they walk in and not feel represented at all? Do they have any trust? Do they have a reason to distrust the system? Mm. And if so, how can you go out of your way to create safety and trust with that person? Because you probably have to work a bit harder on that than somebody who just is represented by the world around them and isn't targeted by the system every day so they don't have qualms about walking into your organisation and looking at their use of violence. Um, they might, they're going to have resistance and shame and all of those other things, but they don't have extra layers of Mm. who do you represent and are you going to be after me as well and I don't trust you because I've never had a reason to trust the institutions in this society because they've taken my kids away from me or they've violated me, they've raped me or my people, my intergenerationally. So Mm. at the crux of that, we think of Australia's First Nations people and their experiences of our systems and then, sort of everybody after that and their experiences
0: and i think the fact that you even raised that um because as you walked us through that example i was imagining a workplace or a, an organization but then as as it flowed for me i was like oh this is this is so much greater than these because that in itself is a silo um it's, it's everywhere in our society, in our communities, in our, like, just in, in these pockets that we have and the ways that we interact with people in different ways um, and yeah. in a different settings. It's just as important um, because I'm sure you have seen behaviour play out in place A but not in place B, but the individual is the same, but exactly. it's based on the environment.
1: Exactly, So yes, which is which is specifically why we say family violence is a choice. Because person A, not using violence at work, even if their colleagues or their boss pisses them off or mm-hmm. upsets them or does something that's disagreeable with them, but they will conduct themselves in a particular way because that context has consequences to behaviour. And it might mm-hmm. be you lose your job, it might be you know, you're out in society and you might get arrested by the police in the home we've given less consequences throughout history. It's behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. it's private business, no one can know about it. And you can actually use that to your advantage and you can create isolation in the home so that the person has less access to report your behavior. Then there's also not believing the person and not understanding the the subtle behaviors that are also uses of Mm -hmm. violence. So that person will know that there's no consequences. And so they will then feel entitled or more enabled to use those behaviors in the home, and it mm. has nothing to do with anger. It's just overpowering yeah. somebody. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. So, so that's and the word balance does make us automatically think about. It makes me automatically think of anger. It doesn't yes. make me think of control or um, or power or yeah, whatever. A million words. It may The first thing I think of when I hear the word violence is I think of anger. Yeah,
1: because when um, we talk about violence, we start to think about the behaviour and the actions of the person using it. Mm-hmm. What you want to think about is the impact on the person experiencing it and that's why we mm-hmm. call it violence in Victoria and in Australia mostly and that's actually quite a radical, powerful um, and deliberate um a decision that was made to use the word violence because it's not reflecting the behaviors we automatically think of as violent, but the impact on the person. And the impact of someone who never experiences physical violence in their entire relationship, but is socially isolated, who they talk to, where they go is controlled. Even if that's subtle, they just know that it's just better, you know, I'll just avoid the argument by not talking to that person because it just, he doesn't like mm. it um, and it's okay. I just don't have to talk to that person and that just can grow over time to be include a lot more people and um, that person who's not allowed to work or, or study or have, you know, access to make money or um, mm. is even if they work and make money, they're put on an allowance Um, Mm. And that happens so subtly. It's not like, oh, you start a relationship with someone and they say, I'm putting you on an allowance. It's just Mm. so gradual and it starts so small and it grows. So that person is too frightened to even raise the issue with their partner because there will be often emotional and psychological consequences to doing that. Mm. And the threat Mm. of physical, even if the physical never occurs, but mm. the threat of it might be there in the background, and it might you might be consciously aware of it or not. But that's an experience of violence, that's terrorism in your own home, mm. Mm. and that's why we use such strong language because that person's yeah. not free to move, they are yeah. controlled,
0: and, they, and they're often not even aware because the, of the subtleties. Um, yeah, which is as you said earlier, you have people that come through the training and might be like no that's that's not me at all but by the end and with the education they're like oh actually i really need to think about this in a different way now that i have language and and a, a better understanding of of yeah. what this subject like how many layers there are to this topic uh,
1: look absolutely and i think just acknowledging that if anyone's listening right now and sort of wondering, um, because it is a really, really sensitive topic. And Mm. the first time you think to yourself, I might have experienced violence, is so confronting and can be really frightening. Um, And actually, if you keep diving in and learning more, it's probably waves of confrontation and fear before you get to the point of healing or overcoming or building resilience to sit with. And, you know, so we, th- we look at survivors of traumas, you know, and, and people who speak out publicly and you think, wow, how did you live through all that? And you're just standing there talking about it, but they are not in the early stages of addressing yeah, and, and very much so. even realizing yeah. it. And so, If you are in those stages, it is so important to speak to family violence experts and jump Mm -hmm. online, join forums where people might have experienced the same thing because people can just feel so isolated in that experience and so blamed because the person using the violence is so good at blaming the victim for it and saying it's your fault and if you didn't do this, I wouldn't do that. And it's all justifications you know, galore, they can probably write textbooks on the justifications they use. So it's really, really important to actually meet other people and, and, and realize that everybody goes through the same like to some it's a different experience for each person, but the impact is the same. Um yeah. and, and I
0: that mean that's yeah, so so, just having um, to, to sit in the that space and and to know that you aren't alone um in the experience which is yeah. You know, very unfortunate but it's the reality um that being said i uh, like for our listeners who all know that these details are in the show notes so the the details of connecting with the institute and with huller are in our show notes um and uh, the institute of Nonviolence social media handles are also in the show notes for this episode so if you bit if you've you just want to learn more or if you are starting some questions are rumbling around in, in your in your head and you're thinking I, I just need to dive into this a little bit deeper. Um, start with heading to the Institute's website. They have um, a page with resources broken down in, in different w- ways because we all are absorb and obtain information and 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 take it on in different ways so there are areas where you can read and watch and and listen and and that to me is really important as well because sometimes we're not in the right frame of mind to read but to listen whilst we walk or process information um so definitely head to the show notes head over and just check it out and see You can learn something new about intersectionality or or anything else at the and, moment. And just
1: a to flag too that absolutely, like looking for information and wanting to engage with the conversation we've created. That space on the website for people to do that. If you're in a position of crisis, however, and you need immediate support for the experience of violence, um, go to one eight hundred respect uh, or Safe mm. Steps in Victoria. Um, ring triple O if it's a direct emergency. Um, Yeah, so the Institute of Nonviolence is not a crisis support service.
0: So if that's your
1: condition, if that's your situation right now, then go to 1-800-RESPECT and from their website you can find a whole bunch of referrals as well. I guess that's the national one that, you know, is easy to flag.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, We'll make sure that they are in the show notes as well. So if someone has gone, I really need to speak to someone more urgently and and this isn't a curiosity or research element this yeah Um, Yeah. so we will have those links as well in our show notes and and Um, if you're
1: someone who's wondering whether you're using violence and you really want to look at your behavior there's um we can put these i'll send them to you as well if you like to put in the show notes the men's referral service um is a great starting point but 1-800-RESPECT as well and particularly for a woman who thinks you're using violence um that's one place to go So there's there's more and more support out there for people and I think what's really important is that we just have these conversations as confronting as they are. If we don't talk about it, it stays behind closed doors. It stays a topic that's too complex
0: to Mm. do something about. That's very true. So with the fact that you have launched the Institute now and we are in a new year, you are in a new state, you've moved into state. I By lockdown. um, Board I was kicked out of Victoria. Lake,
1: <laughs> I was booted out on New Year's Eve. Yeah, but I you t- now you
0: live the <laughs> sunshine life at the beach all the time, living the, your best life. Um, what is on the horizon for you? What projects are coming up for you this year?
1: So we're, we're continuing to work with a range of clients um, and in a way, you know, I'm sort of pretty blessed in that I, it doesn't matter where I live in, in Australia right now because I'm sort of working across different states. Um, we've got some, a lot of projects with uh, people who are directly working with perpetrators. So there's some really exciting things to look out for once it's released later this year. Um, there'll be more hoo-ha about it, but we're just redesigning some programs um, for working with perpetrators of family violence, uh, reviewing things, uh, designing training, and delivering it. And um, we're doing a lot of work in the multicultural space in terms of training with that intersectional lens, which really applies to the mainstream space too, but the multicultural and settlement spaces are um, very forthcoming in seeking um, that level of support. But so there's a lot of training going on. There's massive program reviews. We're getting involved with gender equity strategies as well with local governments and um, with the view over five years to create an equity for all strategy, um, you know, but gender is is a good start, I, you know, it's got to start somewhere in Australia so and fun. there's an appetite for that and it's International Women's Day so that's very yes, valid to think is. of all, all women identities and um, women of all sexual orientation and cultural background, so if we think of all of that and women with different abilities, we kind of create, we need to really create a, an equity strategy for for everyone. We, we will do it. Um, what else are we doing? Um, just continuing our social media engagement and conversations and uh, we will be releasing another collaboration with Luca Lesson who's an artist we work with. So we launched the institute with his Po- new poem at the time which was written specifically for our launch and it was called A Letter to My Daughter and the focus of that was men's violence towards women and we will be releasing um, another poem soon and video clip called Stereotype and that addresses racial discrimination. And So we're hoping to do that for with in line with the International Day to Eliminate Racial Discrimination. Um, mm-hmm. These things are all valid. It, it is Women's Day today. So... <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Um, we try to uh, find creative avenues to put the word out there and to have the conversation and engage a range of people in the community in in the work that mm-hmm. we do. I might yeah. have forgotten some stuff we're doing. It's it's oh, follow, follow really us fine. on social media. <laughs> we have like so the worst going on. We have such a great person taking care of our social media, <laughs> overseeing <laughs> our marketing. She's so professional and brilliant, and it's such a pleasure to work with her. <laughs> we just like give you a bit of a um, little plug, <laughs> a little plug. Yes, it, for is a you. it is for you.
0: It's a pleasure to share the the. I learn so much every week when we put things together. I'm like, oh. I didn't know about this and I get to read and learn and it's it's fantastic. So, yes, yes, I am currently the little creative person behind the scenes of social media for the Institute, which is very cool. Um, so, last question, favourite question, who inspires you and why?
1: Such an interesting question, you know, a sort of um something you get asked a lot, like from when you're young. um. Mm. You know, and I was i was actually thinking about this question, you know, being International Women's Day and um, and this is something that I have thought about a lot. When I think about women and, and you know, and, uh, there are women who are well-known, who have done amazing things and it's, it's so easy to name famous people in terms of who mm. inspires you because you know about them. But I have for a very long time, I think since I was a kid, I was in to some extent aware of the, and, and uh, you know, in, in different ways as your brain develops and you're able to articulate these things, but I've always been really blown away by the mothers and grandmothers and the women who aren't married and don't have children who, who are just battlers. Like I think International Women's Day is such an important event to mark the emotional labour that women do and the silent heroes, you know, and we talk about we venerate war heroes so much in the context of soldiers and they're, they're largely male um, throughout history. But I, this, the, for me the real soldiers of society are all women because they fight every day against sexism, misogyny. They do it with such um, eloquence and so much um, honour in terms of, mm. Women have to fight every day to maintain their own honor as a woman. Um you know then this going to open up a whole other conversation for a whole different show but you know from, a whole other for another podcast. No, it's a whole other podcast, but actually there's an article called From whore to Madonna and it's just like just briefly I meant, you know just to briefly mention it, but this idea that women need to go from whore to Madonna in the eyes of men. And mm. that's actually the binary that we've been given. You're either Going to be placed in a derogatory uh, pile where we feel like we could sort of uh, use you in certain ways and speak about you in certain ways. And we think of uh, every language and culture I'm aware of the most derogatory terms and the most um, insulting things you can say involve the women's body parts or um, women themselves being mm. sexualized. Mm. And, or you're a Madonna, which is like the Virgin Mary sort of mother that will just defy all things live with the violence overcome all things and do everything she can for her children and that's sort of nurturing and we're so venerated when we show that and there's sort of where is the professional and where is the academic and where is the woman who defies all of those conventions and sits nowhere within that and cop so much stigma and shame in society for just wanting to be a bit different. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there's so much in between. So for me, every woman, um, particularly assigned female at birth and grew up with woman identity because, I I, I mean, again, it's another show to speak about other other identities, but just kind of copying that stigma and shame from birth and growing up with all the expectations of society and the work we do, all of us, to overcome the barriers, that's what inspires me is the brilliance of that.
0: Wow. Please excuse the puppy that you can likely hear in the so background. You. If Your you puppy just hear. agrees with me. He does. <laughs> he's, he's a feminist. He's, the, he's a feminist. He's a 100% a feminist because... He's obsessed with me. You know how awesome I am. <laughs> <laughs> He's not normally this loud. He's decided, for those listening who have never heard the puppy in the background, the puppy has decided to now enter the space where the studio or cupboard is. Everyone knows it's in a cupboard. And he is running around just outside the door right now. He's not even supposed to be upstairs. This is a whole other conversation that I will have on another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but that, how to um, manage a puppy. How to manage a puppy. Um, That was such a beautiful way of, one, us ending our chat today, but also us, um, I'm going to go enjoy the rest of my International Women's Day now after we record today and it's so true. You talk about, uh, when you spoke about just all the complexities of being a woman and, and what we experience from day one um and you know for me personally as a mother and as a a partner and um just all the roles that I play um that really does speak volumes because I've seen that play out I've seen the two extremes play out in my own life and and how I've been seen by the world and the male gaze and all of the things. So, as I said, whole nother conversation. But, yeah. um, but thank you, thank you so much for sharing that with us and um, and reminding us of all the inspiration that there is in the world with all of the incredible women that are out there, just just doing life, just doing the everyday. Mm. Um, so, as I said earlier to our listeners, there will be lots of details in the show notes of how you connect can connect with Huller and with the Institute of Nonviolence and also those resources that she shared with us um, as we, you know, if there is anything um, or you need support and more immediate support, those resources will also be in our show notes. Please check them out. Um, Thank you again, Hala, for joining me today on International Women's Day but also here on the podcast um, and for being such an inspiration. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today and for being a part of this incredible community. Remember to hit subscribe, to share this episode with your friends and family, and to join us in our next episode to be inspired by more exceptional women.